Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and uh, thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. We've got you for an hour of science now until noon in the studio with me, and I do mean in the studio, which is a bit weird. For the first time this year, is, uh, well, first time in a year, is Chris KP. Good morning, sir. Hello. It's, it is very good to be here. It is weird, <laughs> though. It's, but I, I, yes, I enjoy everything, I do everything about this, the journey in, coming in, sitting down. Yes, even seeing you. Well, is, yeah. uh, yes, it's for yeah. excitement. Thankfully, we are, we are separated by a very, very thin piece of perspex. <laughs> I can see everything. uh, I'm not sure it's helping with anything, but uh, but hey, we're there. And on the line, we've got Dr. Jen. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Shane. Good to see you virtually. Um, It's sad that there's more than perspex between us, but... That's just how it has to be this morning. Yeah, that's all good. Um, believe me, this perspex between me and Chris is barely thick enough. But uh, you know, <laughs> I, would, I would have gone for something more like aluminum. <laughs> well, at least at least if he starts spitting at you, you'll be able to see it. Jane. Yeah, there's some backsplash for him. It's un- unfortunate. <laughs> you wouldn't uh, look better. <laughs> good morning, Dr. Ewan. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Now, we should jump straight into news. We've got a lot of guests today. It's going to be a pretty exciting show. Uh, Ewan, do you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, I couldn't go past this story this week, uh, which is a sea slug called Psychoglossum. And it's a study from Japan where they found that these sea slugs cut their heads off by choice. But interestingly, uh, the question is, why would you cut your head off? You know, what's what's the benefit of doing that? And, and how do you survive once you've cut your head off? Hmm. So interestingly, they observed these sea slugs that literally did cut their own heads off. And that's a process called autotomy. And that happens in quite a few different animals. I'm sure some people might have even kept, you know, Mexican walking fish as a kid and they can grow their limbs back. And um, so there are animals that are known to do this. But what's really remarkable about these sea slugs is when they cut their head off, you know, their heart, their digestive system, their reproductive system is all left in the remainder of their body. So literally all that's left is their head. And these heads start walking around, like basically straight after they've severed the rest of their body off and they start feeding. Hmm. They start feeding on, on algae and you think, well, again, so how does one survive when you cut your head off and how do you actually eat? And what it turns out, they think, is that they're eating algae, which, of course, photosynthesize, and they're getting energy from the algae. And within an hour, they've basically healed the wound. And within, I think it's about three weeks as a, as a minimum, they can recover their whole body. Now, I guess you might think, well, why would you, why would you cut your head off? And they think basically that this is a, an evolved um, adaptation, if you like, that the sea slug has that maybe rid itself of parasites. So if you have parasites in your body and not in your head, you simply just cut your head off. And there's a nice little neat line behind their head, a, a ring that they noticed that all these sea slugs have. And in the lab, they basically put a bit of string around this ring to sort of simulate, I guess, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, um, other organism being there. And sure enough the sea slugs cut their heads off. So they are, <laughs> it's a remarkable story. And, of course, you know, the question is, you know, how do you regenerate all these body parts? And it's to do with stem cells. And stem cells are really common in all invertebrates. And so they do have these really amazing regenerative powers, which, of course, you know, medicine has been researching for a long time, you know, trying to sort of work out how organisms do this and, of course, the potential applications that it might have mm. for, for we humans. So... It's a pretty fascinating story. I, I don't want to. I don't want to ask this, but I need to know: How do they <laughs> cut their heads off? 
Um, I actually don't know the, the physiological process of doing that. So I assume that there must just, obviously, the tissues, the cells must just break, break apart. Out, but yeah. the story, yeah, the story doesn't really go into that in, in a lot of depth. But that's a good question about how they actually do it. They don't have a saw. Um, they don't have, they don't <laughs> I have was, hands. I was <laughs> picturing a little mini guillotine, you know. Can't they just kind of line up under the guillotine and another sea slug's there to go, yeah. you know, move yeah. along. Yeah, sharp, I mean, sharp uh, be the again, cold. If anyone's picked up a skink or a gecko the wrong way, you would know that they can shed their tails as well. So I assume there's some sort of physiological mm. break there. But great question. I'm not sure exactly how that mechanism works. But Interesting uh, I'll stuff. Have to look into that. I'd, I'd like yeah. to know. I'd like to know if you. Um, and firstly, just a warning for listeners: please don't try this at home. Uh, I'd like to know. You know, if you, if I could remove my body and have it grow back, does it grow back the way it is now? Because that's kind of not the point. Can yeah, it grow you want back a fresh new one? Twenty years ago yeah. <laughs> would be what so, I'm after. So in the case of geckos, their tails never grow back the same. So the original tail looks completely Ooh. different to the, a regenerated tail. Careful but in the case of these sea slugs, from what I can see, they look pretty similar. So, mm. yeah. yeah, yeah. No, yeah don't, don't try this at home. No, <laughs> no point in growing back the old body. I want to grow back a new... I'm still waiting for the robot body. Chris KP, what do you got for us? Uh, look, I just wanted to... Look, this is um, uh, unlike me, of course. It's slightly self-indulgent. Um, but I... Uh, which so, part, sorry, which part was unlike you? Um, the somewhat. Part. <laughs> the somewhat bit. No, so I, I, you know, I spent many years uh, doing genetics programs with high school students. Mm. And, uh, and even prior to sort of genetics programs per se, it was biology programs looking at genetics at, at, a, at a fairly simple level. And one of the classic things that you'd pull out of most textbooks was an understanding of eye colour. And you'd have a little Punnett square drop, a two-by-two two thing with, with uh, blue and brown options for your alleles. And then you'd be able to work out, you know, depending on the parents, what the likelihood of a particular coloured eye was. And I remember even, a, even as a kid in school actually going, okay, but... My family, I've got three siblings. We've got the same parents, and the eyes aren't all the same color. I mean, mm. you know, they're similarish in some ways. Yep. But, you know, anyway. Um, and then it didn't take very long for me to stumble upon researchers. Uh, again, we're going way back, decades back here, going, yeah, it, it's not really that simple. And yet, it keeps appearing as this standard thing you go to to understand um, inheritance. So, a bunch of research, international team of researchers, um, led by King's College and uh, and Erasmus University, did some really hardcore genetic analysis of 195,000 people. So it's genetic analysis of of a lot of people mm. across a large, and I don't know how detailed this is, but it's, they say across Europe and Asia. Now I don't know which bits and to what extent, but anyway, they've done that. What they've discovered is 50 new genes that influence eye colour. Um, now, if you pause them, and this is this is after another, I think there's twelve that were discovered a few years ago. So there, we're now looking at dozens and dozens of new genes that influence eye color. If you think about what that means, this is not something epigenetic. This is not a small fine tuning of something. It's not something that the environment's done to you. This is something in your genome that's affecting the color of your eyes. Now, so on one hand, the first thing I thought was told you so. <laughs> I know very yeah, little yeah. about eye genetics, but I knew it wasn't that simple is the yep. first thing. But then you go, you know, not people like, for me, that's enough. I'm, I'm intrigued that that's already happening. But for other people, I know they sort of go, whoop-de-doo. Um, do we really need to understand this? And the bottom line is, yes, we do. Um, there is quite a number of, of, of conditions, as in medical conditions, that are affected by pigment of the eyes. There are conditions where the pigment actually covers up the mm, lens of your yeah, eye yeah. and you can't yep. see stuff. So this is perhaps a step in that direction. So I guess it was one of those situations where, you know, as is always the case, we didn't know as much as we did, as we thought we did. Or more importantly, now we've got proof that we didn't know as yeah. much as we thought we did. And it actually potentially has enormous implications for people with eye conditions too. And um, to all those people producing textbooks, 
Cha-ching. Yeah. <laughs> well, well I'm, I'm caught between cha-ching and try a little harder. Yeah, well, you know? update these things because it, it changes, and you know, that perception just rolls through everyone. And I, I would have hoped, so you know, naively, I would have hoped that in the era of, you know, uh, the interwebs and electronic interfaces, that updating some of that information Pretty should easy. be quite easy. Yeah. It's not the same as having to Definitely. get a print run redone. Yeah, you would hope. You would hope. Alrighty. Now, uh, Dr. Jim, what's going on with our eucalypt trees? Yeah, I thought I'd uh, sneak in rather than doing some normal news. I wanted to sneak in the fact that National Eucalypt Day is just around the corner on March the 23rd. So this is our biggest annual celebration of the wonder of eucalypts, which, you know, I reckon hold a pretty special place in the heart of many Australians. If you've ever travelled in Europe or, you know, parts of the US and you suddenly get a smell of eucalypt mm. and you think, oh, I'm really homesick because it's just such a distinctive smell. So in the lead-up to uh, National Eucalypt Day, there's fantastic events all around Australia. There's exhibitions and art classes and field trips and guided walks and there's a photography competition. So I'd encourage everyone to go to the Eucalypt Australia website to see what's happening near you. So that's eucalyptaustralia.org.au. And one of my favourite parts of the annual celebration every year is uh, you get to take part in the voting for what's going to be our favourite eucalypt for 2021 because there's nearly 900 species of eucalypt in Australia. So voting is open right now. If you go to that website, you'll find it and then share your vote um, online and get if you tag Eucalypt Oz and use the hashtag Eucalypt of the Year, we get to see who's going to win and there are prizes. So when you submit your vote, you get to submit 50 words saying why you've chosen this species and then they'll announce the winners on National Eucalypt Day, March the 23rd. So the three previous winners are not eligible. So if you would count your favourite to be either river red gums or snow gums or red capped gums. Note that they are not in the running this year. But it's a National Eucalypt Day is a very broad church. So any species in the genera is eucalypt, carimbia or angophora are all eligible. And I just think what a great thing to celebrate our eucalypt. So I'm voting for the Silver Princess. That's my vote. You guys want to mm. let me know what you're voting for? Ewan? That's it. Tough choice. Well, snow gum's out, so that, yeah, that, snow that gum's would have been gone. one of my one of my top three. I think that my other top three would either be um, ghost gums mm. or salmon gums from Northern Australia, which are also mm. spectacular. Mm. Yeah, I'd be. Uh, I, I can't go past a regnans, past a mountain ash. Um, if that's yep. if that's still an option, I'm surprised it wasn't previously voted on actually because they're yeah they're, they're pretty amazing striking pretty amazing. Yes. yeah yes. well so I have a lot of I have a lot of trauma around this because I uh, when I was in uh, year eleven biology we had an assignment where you had to go and find and bring in a piece of eucalypt and I I had to redo mine because. Just out of luck, the bit that I grabbed from, I think we went down to the Yuyangs one weekend and I grabbed it, was the exact same one they had on display in the Botanical Gardens and apparently that had been struck off the list and you couldn't have that one. And I was like, what? And it was like, mine, mine came from like 100 kilometres from the city, what? And I was, I'm just traumatised. I'm still, I dropped biology after that. That's why I never became a doctor, because of the eucalypts, Jen. Because of the eucalypts. See the like power I, of trees? <laughs> the power of trees changed my direction. Jane, I, I can't believe you. I've, I can't believe I've known you for like 15, 20 years. I've never years, told you And this story. is the first time I've heard this story. That's, that's because I've suppressed it as best I can, Jen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally understand. So perhaps this wasn't a good topic for me to bring uh, up today. It was, <laughs> it was really interesting though because I remember I remember my dad taking us down to the to the Yuyangs, which is just in you know, a magnificent part of the world. 
Absolutely. And, and you know, this. I, I remember seeing uh, colleagues in my class where you could see the sore marks from where they'd taken something <laughs> to drink. And I just picked mine up off, you know, a fallen branch off the, off the ground, of which there are many. And yep. uh, and then, you know, got this thing of you can't use the one that's in the botanical gardens, you cheat. And I'm like, what? I, I didn't even know oh, there was tash. one labelled because it's labelled. <laughs> in the botanical gardens, they're labelled, you know, and it was, that was the – yeah, so it was a bit harsh, a little bit of a you know, bit of a rough time, but you know, stuck with physics, things turned out okay. Yeah, so well, uh, so so you say, Shane. But you know, we know things would have been far better if you'd been if you'd turned out to be a biologist. So. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I've ended up uh, you know interview a lot of biologists, so there's still the love there. The the love is there. It's interesting actually when you think about how things are taught. You know, I know so many people who really have not liked the way physics was taught when they were younger and they often take a different path. I, For me, I didn't like the way biology was taught because mm. it was too much mm. memorization and recitation yeah. back in the day. And I like yep. solving problems, not just being told things to remember. So, you know, different people have different capabilities and and, it re- and, and that, that difference in teaching styles really can change people's directions unnecessarily, you could say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, And it so comes down to individual teachers too because, yeah. you know, different teachers teach things completely <laughs> differently. Yeah, I don't know how. Well, when it comes to that, I don't know how I got through physics because my high school, my main high school physics teacher, was a shocker. <laughs> but <laughs> my chem- my chemistry teacher was great. I really didn't like chemistry, but he was a a guy named David Hennel. Um, not sure if he's still with us, but he was a he was a fabulous chemistry teacher. I really um, loved the way he taught chemistry. It's it's interesting how you you end up. Um, you end up, you know, getting through things with pretty good marks if you have great teachers, which is yeah. yeah Even absolutely. if you don't love the love the topic, a great teacher can really inspire people. So, yeah. Well, we Agreed. better we better go to a track so that we can uh, get our first uh, guest. We've got some really interesting guests on today on the line soon. So, Jen Ewan, thanks so much for doing news with us again. We hope to see you in the studio soon. I'm stuck now here with Chris KP alone, which is not you know not my <laughs> ideal circumstance. <laughs> We'll, we'll be be kind to each other. Be very kind to each other. We will. Have fun with that. We will. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Folks, we're going to play you some uh, music and uh, we'll be back in just a moment with our first guest for today. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. On the line with us now is Dr. Jody Gertz. Good morning, Jody. How are you going? Yeah, good morning. I'm doing great. Thanks. Now, now you're part of. B-Scientific's proprietary limits, is that correct? That's right, yeah. All about bees. I love them. I mean, we've, we've, talked, we've talked a lot about bees because there's there's so much going on. Now, I should preface this by saying something like 50% of my bee knowledge comes from the bee movie, which I know is bad. Um, totally, totally wrong. Totally wrong. Uh, good to know, good to know. Um, but our agricultural industry is obviously so dependent on this. I mean, just give us a quick rundown on on where bees find you know their place in Australia in terms of our industries. Okay, so there's some crops that are 100% reliant on bee pollination, mm-hmm. like almonds, for example. We wouldn't have almonds if we didn't have bees to pollinate them. Um, other crops, melons, cucumbers, avocados, macadamias. You can One third, really, of our the food that we ate is reliant on honeybees to pollinate. In Australia, we're in a really interesting um, situation because coming up to National Eucalypt Day, when, when our bees aren't busy working, pollinating our crops, making our food, um, 
they're often native forests primarily gathering honey. So right. they're also acting as a pollination service, promoting genetic diversity to our eucalypts, but having access to those eucalypt resources mm. is so fundamentally important to keep the bees healthy so that they can come back when the almonds are blooming in August to pollinate the almonds. Yeah. So, um, it's pretty interesting though, when the almonds do bloom, it's the largest movement of livestock in Australia. The largest amount of any amount of livestock moving in Australia to come pollinate the almonds. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's an extraordinary yeah, part awesome. of our part of our economy. Everything now. Of course, you're one of the recipients, and congratulations on the Victoria Fellowship, um, which is of of course coming from the Victoria yes. State Government. And these awards are delivered by Vesky. And so my understanding, uh, I've been, I've, you know, back in the day, I'm not sure if it happened this time, but back in the day, there was a great ceremony at Government House when they would give these things out and so forth. Um, but this, this is about bringing, bringing knowledge back to Victoria from overseas. Talk, talk us through what that's going to look like for you, because I think my naive view of this is that our bees seem to be doing really well. Everyone else's bees seem to be doing really badly. So what, what is the interchange of knowledge? Okay, so here, here's the thing is that our bees are doing really well because we don't have this varroa mite. It's an ectoparasite of honeybees, vectors, viruses, number one cause of colony decline in the world, mm -hmm. right? In the world. We don't have it here. Um, in that, our bees are quite naive to that parasitism, um, those viruses. So that creates. A, situ a really potentially <clears throat> catastrophic situation where when Varroa does come, when it's landed on our shores several times and mm. our uh, great biosecurity uh, efforts have stopped it at the border. But just like New Zealand that happened about early 2000s, it will come right. and it will be established. So it's just a matter of time. Now, there is any host pathogen situation there becomes a balance between the host and the pathogen, and they figure out how to work it out. Now, a lot of the problems in the world around that host-pathogen relationship is we have artificially propped the honeybees up through miticides, through chemicals, because they're so important, mm. and we can't, we, we gotta keep them alive. We can't allow them to just die. But in that, there's been a lot of different research efforts and even um, wild populations that have allowed that natural balance to come into play. So there are populations that are resistant to Varroa, that they can keep the mite levels at a manageable place within the colony. So my goal, and this is what I've been working on here in Australia for uh, since I came in 2013, really, is to prepare for living with Varroa. So my project will go to Europe to work at, in the Netherlands and France um, and learn how to select for Varroa resistance. And now there's um, a couple techniques that are just um, coming online that we can select for varroa resistance without actually having varroa so that will be really applicable that's the information to bring back to australia say hey we can do this yep here our bees 
um, and prepare everybody, including with these. Yeah, super interesting. Jody, I'm, I'm wondering, um, when you say that there, there are um, bees that are resistant to the varroa mite, what yeah. is it that gives them resistance? And, and, yeah. I mean, do we just gather some of those and bring them over here or is there something else we can yeah, do? Good question. Well, absolutely. Like I'm, I'm involved within a current project that is importing varroa resistant stock into Australia currently right now. Um, but that's not the end all be all because we live in such a unique place that our bees are really well adapted to our local environment. Yeah. So there's a couple mechanisms. There's a lots of different mechanisms. It's really complex, but things that um, people select for are gro- is grooming behavior. So how the bees actually bite and inter- interact with the mites. Um, and then there's this other um, response called varroa sensitive hygiene, where um, the, the bees can detect uh, varroa in the cells and actually uncap and remove before the varroa mite in the bee cell can reproduce. Right. So it, they're coming at a lot of different angles. Bees do, but and yeah. and, and Jody, with with the um, as you said, it's only a matter of time before it ends up here. And there's been a couple of you know little sparks already. Are these generally coming through, you know, when, when people come back from overseas and they come through the airport and it's like, you know, make sure you don't bring any food and fruit and blah, blah, blah. Is, is that the source or is it something else? No, mostly it's hitchhikers. Hitchhiker oh. storms on yep. container ships, um, on airplanes. Um, a, there's a lot of different varroa species. There's varroa destructor, which is causing all the major trouble. But then there's varroa jacobsoni. Um, that comes down from Papua New Guinea. So we've seen swarms of bees and and they can travel on Asian honeybees. That's their native host, actually, mm. um, coming down from Papua New Guinea. Um, in the cut flower industry, there's lots of bees associated with that that come in. Um, there was a swarm that came in from Texas a couple years back on a container with farm equipment so that's mainly it's it's in the big industrial ports and the airports are carrying cargo is where it comes yeah well i mean that's um it's hard to defend against that when you if you want to be, <laughs> you know in, in the international world where you, you see those ships and cargo containers lined yeah. up in our docks it just um i, I suppose that's a, that's a difficult challenge is is there also I, I can imagine like especially in far north queensland and so forth where there are weather scenarios that can carry you know, all sorts of things for hundreds of kilometers. That must also be a, a potential oh. source as well. Yeah, that's right. And also um, far north Queensland, the Asian honeybee has been naturalized. So mm. more swarms can come in and without the proper um, detection techniques, we won't know if a new swarm came in that carried the mite. And it don't, the thing is, is it only takes one mite, yep. just one because that female mite she'll lay in a cell she'll lay uh, male and female eggs and then they mate with one another so you don't need two you just need yeah, wow. one to come into the country it's very efficient <laughs> it's a very disturbing very, number yeah it's very yeah and it's our biosecurity like our border force has done such an amazing job but yeah. it will break down and it's just a matter yeah. of time so, my work is like taking it like, okay, you guys are doing a good job. But once we get to the point of actually needing this, let's yep. have 
let's have the plan in place. Like, let's get yeah. ahead of it. Yeah. As we can. No, it sounds like a good plan. Now, of course, things are a little different to what they normally are for Vesky fellows in terms of you know normally you get on these luxury plane no these plane flights over to to who knows where and bring back this knowledge after several months. What what is that going to look like for you in 2021? Do you do you still get to go? So not not in 2021. Um, I've pushed it back hopefully to 2022. Um, the work I can do, the work I need to do is hands-on in beehives, so I can't really do it virtually, and it can only happen in July, August, and September. That's it. Right. That's when the selection process happens. That's yep. when the breeding happens. Um, so we'll push it back, and then hopefully I'm just relying on some vaccinations. and Yeah. And yeah, hope for the best. The huh? but yeah, yeah, yeah. And if... By then, it's not looking good. Well, we're going to have to come up with yeah, another, another plan. plan. Another plan. Well, the good news is, if it's not looking good, at least there's less things coming in on planes and so forth. Uh, you might. Uh, have to, yeah. That's exactly right. That's yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, now, I should uh, before we let you go. I just have, have you been stung by a lot of bees in your work, or do you just <laughs> never get stung because you respect the bee and the bee respects you? I mean. How does that work for a you know a, a, a bee husbandry type person? Is that yeah, still the term? Have we fixed that term yet? Is it? No, we haven't fixed it. We can call it an apiarist. Right. That's okay. okay. Yep. That's better. Um, no, I get stung nearly every day. Oh wow! But in that, I've got pretty good immunity. <laughs> but I don't wear gloves and things, you know. And so it is a bit of understanding how to work with the animal and yep. how to read their attitude and how to, how to. Um, move carefully. Move very slow. Stung every day. You're, you're selling it. You're selling it to a next generation coming through. It's fantastic. <laughs> well, <laughs> Jody, look, it's great. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks um, so much, and congratulations again on receiving one of the Victoria Fellowships. Yeah. It's quite an accolade. They don't give out many, and and they're very, very competitive. So good luck with this work. It's spectacularly important. Thanks for educating me. Uh, you've we've wiped out so much of what I learned from the B movie, and now I, I feel like I, I know some stuff yeah. about B. So great talking to you and take care. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, uh, that was uh, Dr. Jody Gertz from uh, B Scientific Proprietary Limited. We're going to take a break for some music. And when we come back, we will be talking to our second Victoria Fellowship for today in just a few moments. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. It's Dr. Shane here. I'm in the studio of Chris KP, which is a bit weird because I uh, haven't seen him in a year. But all good. On the line now, though, we have Dr. Maggie Zay, who is uh, from the RMIT University. Good morning, Maggie. How are you? Good morning, Shane. I'm doing good. Thanks for having us. Oh, look, it's great to have you on the line. And uh, firstly, congratulations. Much like Jody, our previous guest, you are one of the recipients of a Victoria Fellowship. That's that's fantastic news. They're not easy to get. Well done. Thank you very much. I mean, look, I really appreciate and like to thank Victoria's state government for the award and for Vesky to um, deliver the award to me. Yeah, very excited. Yeah, that's fabulous. Now, let's talk a bit about your work because, believe it or not, you know, it's, uh, you work on vaccines, which is um, something that I suppose, you know, everyone who works on vaccines is a bit of a rock star at the moment. Have you, have you come across a bit of a change in attitude towards the things that you do when you chat to people now? Yeah, I mean, as a material scientist who work on nanoparticle for drug delivery, and that includes mRNA, as you know, the yeah. vaccine. 
um, you know, developed by Pfizer and Moderna. I certainly have received a lot of questions from my friends and families or wherever I go. So, I mean, great momentums for material scientists who are in the field, you know, since what happened with COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's interesting you, you mentioned that because I think a lot of the time people forget just how much just materials work, like baseline, mm. you know, biochemistry and chemical engineering and so forth that goes into some of these materials that we use. Even, even things like just determining you know how thick a material is and how it gets into the body and how it's distributed and so forth it's 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 not just the biomedicine it's a lot of material science in there yeah exactly look i think you are spot on because when we look at this vaccine whether they are protein based or genetic molecule based um they face a lot of challenges when we want to deliver them into the human body and want them to be safe and targeted to where we want them to go and efficacious, right? Mm. And that comes with a lot of challenges. To start with, these molecules are extremely fragile to degradation. I mean, our human bodies have a lot of harsh, um, I mean, harsh environment, either at cellular level or at molecular level. So, for example, these mRNA molecules, they, they, they will degrade quick, quickly in our body if they are not protected by, you know, materials such as like a lipid nanoparticles. And that's what Pfizer and Moderna put in with this mRNA. So they package this mRNA into these lipid nanoparticles to mm. protect them. And, and another challenge when you, when you look at these um, um, vaccines at a cellular level, our cell membranes have a... Um, intrinsic um, negative potential, intracellularly and extracellularly. Now, these mRNA are negatively charged as well. And as you can imagine, because of the electric repulsion, they wouldn't go into the cells and they wouldn't be transcribed into the spike proteins found on the virus. To, right. yeah. To, yeah. So that would make yeah, them so, useless if they're just repelled by the very cells they need it, to get to. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Mm -hmm. So um, again, that's that's the advantage of using nanomaterials to deliver these um, molecules. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to um, ask you about that you mentioned earlier is with things like the mRNA uh, components, those those molecules that they degrade quickly. I mean, what what do you mean by quickly? Are we talking, you know, minutes, hours, days? How long does that stuff last in our body before it's basically useless? Oh, I think minutes and hours. Like our body have a range of enzymes, mm. and um, the bioavailability of this mRNA degrade very quickly. And even like at room temperature, I, I think we all know that. Um, for, for storage and packaging, we all know that Pfizer vaccines require minus 80 storage, right? That's why they're very expensive to transport. And this is because mRNA easily um, degrades at room temperature, even before they enter into the body. Once they enter into the body, they're attacked by enzymes as well. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me, I suppose, because when we think about that transport requirement at, at minus 70, minus 80 degrees, and what are our bodies at? 30, almost 39 degrees? A lot more than minus yeah, 80. A, a, lot, a lot more than minus 80. <laughs> um, so you can imagine, like, if, if the vaccine, even, even in its protected state, um, has to be transported at such low temperatures, even with these additions, 
it's not going to last long in the body. It's got to, it's got to get to where it needs to go quickly, and hence that that requirement for um, the, the the electrical charges around them to be right. Yes. Yeah. 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 So so presumably there you you have to tailor. Once you've tailored this for, for one, though, you could presumably use a similar approach for, for all of these mRNA vaccines, yeah? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like the material scientists optimize their formulations all the time, but the funding principles of this formulation, like, you know, we, we put in some positively charged molecules to complex with this negatively charged mRNA so that they remain stable within this mm. packaging, like nanoparticles. And when they enter, uh, when they are administered into the body, then they will, um, this uh, lipid, nanoparticles that will help transport the mRNA across the cell membrane. And that's when like the genetic um, transcription start to kick in. Yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. So one of the things I've noticed over the years is I remember when I was younger, and Chris KP, you probably remember this too, but mm. you know, any needle was kind of a bad needle. Like it was, oh, yeah. it was not great. Whereas, <laughs> whereas these days, you know, I have a friend of mine we interviewed uh, just last week, Kara Santa Maria, over in in the US, and and she said she didn't even feel the. Uh, she, I think she got the Pfizer vaccine. She said she didn't even feel it was such a small, small needle. I mean, how much of the work that you and other colleagues in material science do is is based around that? You know, making sure the viscosity and so forth of these um, these injections are, are really low so that you don't have to have these giant horse needles going into people's arms. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the beauty of the nanoparticle um, uh, drug delivery technology is that they, they, they flow in. They like aqueous solution, right? So they wouldn't have um, run into problems of injecting these particles. I mean, mm. these particles, are very small, like we're looking at a hundred nanometer scale, tiny. and they are, yeah, tiny, and they are dispersed in an aqueous solution, and that is why, yeah, yeah, it's nice. Um, so tell us, whereabouts are you? Assuming you can travel, and we were just talking to Jody about the difficulties there, but assuming you can travel with the Vesky Fellowship, where, where are you heading off to, and what what knowledge do you hope to bring back? Oh, the most exciting part of my Victoria Fellowship study mission is that I plan to visit two European synchrotron facilities. Wow. And I, you, you guys um, you, you guys know um, Victoria, um, Melbourne has Australian synchrotron, which is like a state-of-the-art, um, the best uh, synchrotron facility in the world, which is just next to Monash University yep. in Clayton. I, and I go to Australian Synchrotron all the time, like four times a year, and I'm, a, I'm an active user and a community member um, in that Synchrotron. So I get to visit two European Synchrotrons. And what I propose to study there is that they have a technique uh, which is called a biological small angle X-ray scattering, BioSax for short. Um, these beamlines allow us to look at these uh, molecules that we talked about at um, a millisecond scale. Mm. Like it's time resolved, extremely short time uh, frame. And we get to look at, for example, how mRNA travel across um, cells or uh, lipid nanoparticles, how diffuse and not. Now, that is something that Australian Synchrotron trying to build. They have been approved with like the funding and all since 2018, and they just purchased, I think they're hoping to purchase the end station in 2021, and then um, the whole beamline will be built 
2022. Mm. So what I hope to bring back to uh, Victoria is all the knowledge, like the European synchrotron facilities, one is in France and one is in Sweden that I'm going to. And they have this biosex beamline for a few years, for a number of years. So I hope to bring back their best of practice, um, yep. and, um, their, their knowledge, the research that they um, they do at, at that beamline back to Victoria, back to the Australian synchrotron and to help, you know, our, our, our best facility there and, and be more readily available to Australia and the New Zealand researchers. Yeah, look, that sounds fantastic. And we know, you know, the European synchrotrons have been around for a lot longer than ours have, yeah. similarly to the one in Sakuba in Japan. You know, they've got a bit of a head start and a lot more funding than, than we've had here in Australia, which is why we don't have as many beamlines and so forth. But we're getting there and we're, we're catching yeah. up. And look, it sounds great to go over there and learn how to do that. And the time resolve stuff is just amazing, of course, because it gives you an ability to look at how things are changing and working over, over a period of time rather than just a snapshot, a single snapshot, which is great. Sounds great. Uh, Maggie, exactly. thanks. Yeah, thanks so much for being our guest today. Congratulations again on getting the Victoria Fellowship and I hope that you get to travel soon and that it's very futural. So thanks for being on Einstein and Go Go. Thanks. Thank you. Folks, uh, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements in a moment, but uh, then we will be back with our final guest today we're going to be talking galaxies which uh we've done the small now we <laughs> try and stay calm we've done the time i'm trying to stay calm you know it's good to talk about galaxies there's all this stuff around rotation australia's done some amazing work with regards to galaxies recently so uh we'll be getting into that in just a few minutes you are listening to einstein and go go it's a science show if you haven't worked that out um i can't help you uh, <laughs> anyway we're back in a sec triple r Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. On the line now, we have uh, Matt Owers. He's a senior lecturer in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Macquarie University. Good morning, Matt. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. I'm well, thanks. How are you? Uh, good. Look, it's great to have you on the line to talk about this work because I think uh, it's one of those areas where you know, some of us have been watching this space for a long time. I don't excuse the pun there, but um, the, the idea of galaxies and really understanding galaxies. And I think for anyone who's sort of seen some of the images coming in from Hubble or, or so forth would see that there is just so many different types of galaxies out there and so many to choose from. But um, you've been working on essentially quite a substantial Australian-led study into just mapping some of them. Give, give us an idea first of, let's talk about the equipment first. What, what sort of things are we using to, to image all these galaxies? Right. So we're using a technique called integral field spectroscopy uh, to, to collect data for these galaxies. In fact, the survey that we've got is called the, the, the SAMI survey. And we like acronyms in astronomy. So SAMI stands for the Sydney AAO Multi-Object Integral Field Spectrograph. Nice. So that's the uh, <laughs> Needed an acronym. we, we uh, built for the Anglo-Australian Telescope uh, and used to do the, the uh, survey. So integral field spectroscopy is really powerful for astronomy. So you mentioned the Hubble Space Telescope, and we, we've all seen the beautiful images coming from Hubble. But what Hubble does is collect light from a very broad wavelength. So it collects light from one colour at a time, and it might produce um, an image using three different colours of, of light to produce the beautiful um, multicolour images that we see yep. in the press releases from Hubble. But what we do is much, much more fine-grained than that. So for each pixel in an image, we collect a spectrum. And so each pixel contains maybe 4,000 different images of 
very finely grained different colors. Um, so a spectrum is an extremely powerful um, instrument in our, in, in our astronomer's toolbox because it allows us to do things like measure the velocities of stars in galaxies, the compositions of, of the galaxies, whether they're forming new stars currently or they haven't formed new stars for billions of years, mm. and also what, what uh, elements uh, within those galaxies. Yeah. So now let's let's dive into some detail for people because this is something I think I, I talked about this probably maybe 20 years ago. So some of our listeners will have forgotten. Um, some of them weren't born. But uh, I think um, this idea of measuring velocities in galaxies I find is fascinating. So you, you're talking about things that in some cases are tens or hundreds of millions of light years away. They're, they're, they're very distant, but in themselves, they're huge. And from our perspective, these stars are moving very, very slowly, at least. I mean, we don't observe that motion in real time like you would a, you know, dirty water going down a drain or anything. How do you determine uh, the velocity of a star that's in one of these gigantic galaxies? Right. So we use, um, we, we use the Doppler effect. So in, with, um, with our spectra, we're able to detect um, features that move in wavelength uh, to redder or bluer wavelengths. And what that tells us about is how fast they're moving with respect to us. So it's kind of like, you know, if you're in a, in a car or riding your bike on the road, someone honks their horn at you, the change of frequency of the sound um, is driven by the Doppler effect. And it depends on how fast that person's moving by you. Mm. So we can use the light that we uh, receive from galaxies to measure the same effect in light. And generally, um, you know, there's a couple of different ways that stars can be moving around in the galaxy. In our own Milky Way galaxy, for example, our sun is zooming around the centre of the galaxy at around about 250 kilometres a second. Um, and it does so in a pretty ordered way. So the stars in, our, in, in the disk of our galaxy are moving in um, a relatively ordered rotation. Um, and we see that in a lot of other spiral-type galaxies in the universe. But on the other hand, we see... Um, a different type of galaxies, so elliptical-type galaxies that have sort of football-type shapes. The stars in those galaxies, their orbits are more random, so we don't mm. see this ordered rotation that we see in, in our own Milky Way galaxy. Very interesting. Now, you've been, you've been looking at sort of essentially putting together a catalogue with all the, I mean, this huge amount of data, as you say, many, many different frequencies of light you're collecting for every pixel and getting all this on each galaxy. But you've also been looking at a very large number of galaxies to put together this catalogue of data to better understand this variation between them. So what, what does that look like, this, this big catalogue? Yeah, and I should mention actually that one of the key innovations that, from the instrument that we used was that it allowed us to collect this integral field spectroscopy for 13 galaxies at a time, right. which hadn't really been done before. Previously, you could only do this for one galaxy at a time. And so the catalogues that you could collect, the samples you could collect would only be around a few hundred galaxies. But as you mentioned, we have a large sample of, of 3,000 galaxies, um, which really does allow us to um, look at different types of galaxies in different regions of the universe. So, for example, our own Milky Way galaxy, again, is in a region of the universe that um, has not many galaxies around it. It's a pretty low-density environment. We have one major nearby galaxy in Andromeda, but there are other regions in the universe where there's maybe several hundred galaxies that are nearby. Um, these are clusters of galaxies, and they're very extreme. So this large sample of galaxies allows us to look at um, galaxies in these different types of environments and try and understand 
how that external environment influences the internal properties of galaxies. Yeah. Um, Chris KP, do you have a I, I do have a sort of a question, if, if I can make it make sense. So, Matt, so clearly when you're using SAMI, and, and indeed I, I assume that, you know, the advancing computing power has given you the capacity to analyse bucket loads of data quickly. So given that, and given all the different machinations of galaxies that, you, that you're able to study, to what extent does that tech give you just detail and to what extent does it tell you whole new things that you didn't know were part of the system? Yeah, look, the computational side of things is really important, actually. So um, lots of data. For each galaxy we have, I think I worked it out before, something like a billion points of data per galaxy for 3,000 mm. galaxies. And so the computational um, tech that is required, I mean, we wouldn't have been able to do this in the 90s, right, because you just wouldn't have been able to analyse in the way that we've done the galaxies and the data that we have for the galaxies in our lifetime. <laughs> mm. um, so, you know, the computers that I use have sort of hundreds of CPUs uh, in order to um, make the measurements of many galaxies at, at the same time so that I can actually do this, um, you know, in a in a few year time scale and get my science papers out and all that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And has there been anything that has come out that said, you know, like, holy crap, we just have never seen that before like that because, I mean, we've seen some of this over years where, you know, various galaxies have popped up that we, especially some of the real distance stuff where we go, whoa, hang on, that should be this old, but it's got all these new stars. You know, mm. there's some there's some unusual features. Has anything really jumped out at you as being, well, this is a weird one. We haven't seen that before. Um, so one of, the, one of the cool things that I was involved with was looking at um, – how, how galaxies shut down their star formation mm. and how that depends on, on the environment. And basically what we, what we were able to do is because we have a spectrum across the face of a galaxy, we were able to look at the, the average ages of stars um, across the face of the galaxy. And what we could see was that in outer parts of, a, of some particular types of galaxies that um, there were stars that dominated the light that we saw that are sort of around about a billion years old. But in, in the central parts of those galaxies, we could see evidence for star formation that was currently happening. And what that tells us is that in those outer parts, there's nothing going on at the moment. There's no star formation, but there was about a billion years ago. Mm. And that's a relatively short time scale in, in galaxy, you know, time scales. It's long on our human time scales, but um, on galaxies, it's pretty short. So it tells us that star formation has been stopped very rapidly in those galaxies. And that's interesting because we can relate that back to where a galaxy lives. And it turns out that those galaxies, when we looked at their, um, where they lived in the universe, were likely to be things that had, been, had fallen into a, a dense cluster of galaxies in the last billion years or so. So they, something to do with the environment had stopped the star formation in those galaxies. So that's, that was a pretty cool uh, discovery that we made because of this survey. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, it's interesting to me, we've only got a few minutes left, but when, when you talk about that external environment and things changing and so forth, I, I suppose most people have this idea that, you know, space is just empty stuff. But we know even from the Voyager probes that have now left our, you know, wholeheartedly left our solar system that their particle counts and so forth are still going off like, like you know, they're still detecting a lot of stuff in different environments. How, like, how hostile is, you know, and how filled are the environments, especially around some of these galaxy clusters as you mentioned yeah so the galaxy clusters actually you know there's a lot of a lot of space between the galaxies like a huge mm. amount of space um, even though they're very dense environments in our universe but what fills those spaces between the galaxies is this very hot and tenuous intracluster medium so it's sort of 10 million degrees 
but it's very, very low density. It's lower density than any vacuum we have here on Earth. But because um, a galaxy rushes through that tenuous, hot intracluster medium at sort of 10 million kilometres an hour, what it feels is a wind um, from that um, speeding through that that gas. Mm. Like if you, you stick your head out the window at going at 100 kilometres an hour, yep. the atmosphere rushing past, you feel the wind, right? And what that environment does, that external gaseous environment does, is strip the gas off the galaxies as they speed through that environment. And that gas is required for star formation. And once it's not there, you lose your, yeah. your ability to form stars. So that's an, an example of how that external environment influences the internal properties of a galaxy. Yeah. Now, just before we go, uh, uh, Matt, I think we might just blow a few minds out there of some numbers. And <laughs> I, I, you know, forgive me if, if you don't have these at hand, but about how many uh, stars are in our Milky Way galaxy? Uh, it's about a billion uh, stars, I think, in our Milky Way galaxy. About, about a billion. And so you've just looked at about 3,000-odd galaxies. Uh, presumably that's in you know, a relatively small stretch of sky. Uh, do, do we have a feel for about how many, how many galaxies are out there that we can see? Oh, geez. Um, that we can see, it's, it's, it, it's of the order of at least another 1,000 billion, I'd say, um, in the universe. Um, so I guess uh, I can talk about what we will see with our next generation survey. So we're going to increase um, our next survey is called Hector, uh, and we're going to look at 15,000 galaxies. So we're yeah. going to increase our, our sample by a factor of five. Right. Um, so we're just busy preparing our telescope proposal that's due on Tuesday to, to apply. Oh, well, well we, 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 better, we better let you go. But 15,000, you're getting closer to the you know, hundreds of billions. You know, you'll get there. You'll get there. But One it's, day. It's good good Maybe. progress. Maybe yeah, look, Matt, thanks so much for chatting to us. It's great to see you. a lot of people, I think, are unaware of just how much Australia leads astronomy around the world. And, and we've seen that with, with LIGO, with the gravitational wave detection and many other projects over, over the years here here in Australia. Um, congrats on the work. Keep, keep it up. I know all this data is open access to for people to have a look at and, and, and play around with uh, around the world. So that, that's a great thing as well. But thanks for chatting to us today on 3RRR. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Matt. Well, uh, we, uh, we are almost out of time, folks. We're, um, we're going to have to uh, hand over in a moment to the team from Eat It. Chris KP, it's been good to have you in the studio. I, uh, it's been a while since I've seen you, buddy. Oh, it's been great to be here. It really has been. <laughs> it's been a hoot. I, uh, I, I enjoy being somewhat physical. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, we're all in that mode where we're. Slow. I think people, everyone around uh, around the world, we've got a few listeners overseas, of course, and those in Melbourne, but are realizing that weird feeling when someone else is in the room it's, with you. It's, it's sort of ghost like. Yeah. It's almost like seeing someone you don't recognize, and then but you should recognize. Yeah, it's that weird moment of what? How do, What's the protocol here? Yeah, how do see, I behave? See, I you know I interview several hundred people a year, so <laughs> that happens to me a lot. <laughs> like I should recognize you. I've met you, but yeah, it happens to me a lot. But I think that's a, that's me getting a little bit older folks uh thanks so much for listening again to einstein and go go next week we have the first round for 2021 of the 20 phds in 20 minutes program uh you in fact i'm thinking of putting a heart rate monitor for me online that people can can look at just to see how that is uh, actually a good idea how uh, freaked out i get by doing this trying to interview so many people so quickly but it's a lot of fun and uh the entries will open up i think it's seven o'clock tonight i've scheduled it so that will be great to get those in but until then uh, have a great sunday I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere and stay tuned for the magnificent team from Eat It. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.